Yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like simplicity and I like it to be very couples. clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples. Oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking women. Right, but that's not accurate. You have weird taste. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now, here's the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. What's on your mind this week, man? Recently, I had this conversation with my girlfriend mm-hmm. about expectations. Okay. And it was not something I'd really put much thought into. All right. Expectations generally? About yeah. like what in particular? Well, one of the things that she mentioned to me was, do people get married because they want to be married? Or is it a social expectation that has been planted in someone's mind so they think that they want to get married or even mm. have kids or do so anything like fit at all, in, really? You have to... Yeah. I okay. mean, but it's not fitting in, right? They just think that that's what they want to do without realizing that it's like an expectation from society. All right. It's like a next level desire to fit in where you're not even conscious of the desire. You just think that that is your true desire. Right. Okay. Right. And so it just made me wonder, not only with things like that, you know, going to school, getting, I don't know, a white collar job, getting married, having kids, like what other expectations do we put on ourselves that, you know, is affected by society or, you know, like our communities around us? Well, all, I mean, all of our expectations would probably have to be learned. I mean... That's, like, they're not going to be innate. That, that's probably true. I, I wouldn't disagree with you in that regard. Yeah. It is interesting, though, because when you think about things like what income you would make, there's right. obviously a stark difference between different people's incomes, and there's mm-hmm. a huge difference between people's expectations of income. And it's an interesting contrast to marriage, because in marriage, less so in our society now, But for most societies throughout history and most societies around the world, marriage was just a standard expectation that everybody had. Right. And everybody thought, okay, I'm going to get married. But for income or wealth or, you know, your job or something, Mm -hmm. there are wildly different expectations that people have. And yet they still feel those expectations really strongly. So it's, it's almost like the social momentum that marriage has and how it's so universal. Right. doesn't seem that much stronger to me than people's expectations around other things like whether or not they would go to college or what kind of job they would get. You know, those expectations seem really deep-seated and strong as well. Mm -hmm. It feels like most expectations derive from your family experience, what your parents did, what your siblings did, things like that. I think that's that's probably true. I mean, that would make sense, right? You, You see the people around you doing whatever and you feel the need to do at least as much as they have or sometimes you want to do something very different but you what you end up thinking you will do is based upon what you're exposed to it, it does make a lot of sense but it, it's an interesting interplay between expectations and desire because what you were talking about with marriage is it's not even that they just expect to it's that they want to yeah and that's a very interesting thing because I, I know for a number of people, 
And this seems strongest in like the teaching profession. And I've uh, mostly talked to people about it in terms of jobs and things. Right. But if your parents are a teacher, or that doesn't make any sense if, if one of your parents is a teacher, mm-hmm. uh, or your parents are teachers. Or if both then, your parents are one competent teacher. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. They tag team it. I think it's extremely likely that you will become one. And that is an interesting case to me because it has this kind of double exposure where mm-hmm. not only are your parents going home every night as teachers, and so you're obviously exposed to it through your parents as a real job that you could have that could support your life and your family and everything. Right. You'd be happy as that. But you also get it through school where you have just you know 20 years at the beginning of your life where the job you see more than any other job is your teacher's. Right. Those are the adults you're most exposed to. And so there's just all of this, not pressure, but all of this of familiarity built into mm-hmm. school and teaching and education that doesn't apply to other professions. And so like so many people that I know who have somebody that's a teacher that they're closely related to right. end up becoming it. It's an odd thing because some of them I feel like just accept it. It's like, oh, well, my mom was a teacher, my grandma was a teacher, so I'm going to be a teacher. And so huh. it's like, okay. But other people really want it, you know? Right. That's pretty fascinating to me. You know, I don't know many people whose parents or aunts or uncles, anyone that they're especially close with, being teachers. Okay. So it's never occurred to me, ever at all. Hmm. That that kind of impact would be so strong. Yeah. Well, and you know, it might be potent for other things that are highly visible professions, but I just don't know very many people that do it, like doctors. Right. Like, it's a highly visible profession if your parents do it, and maybe it's also a highly prestigious profession, and so you're maybe more likely to follow that. Maybe there's a high percentage of the children of doctors that become doctors, but I don't know any doctors, so my view is somewhat anecdotal and skewed, perhaps. That's fair. It does seem particular for teachers, though. They tend to fall into it. We're going to have to meet a lot more people who are lawyers and doctors and see if their parents are lawyers and doctors. Yeah. Well, and you know the other thing about teaching? Um, and I know this kind of pulls us away from what you wanted to talk about with expectations. Right. It's interesting as I think about career paths, and I've thought about this a lot for uh-huh. a long time, but especially recently. Certain career paths are so clear and knowable. Right. Like If you want to become a teacher, there's no confusion about what it takes. Right. You can see how to become a successful teacher, and you can do it. Anyone that goes through the step-by-step process can become a teacher. Right. Whereas a lot of things, it's highly ambiguous. It's like, how do you become somebody who trades on the stock market? Well, I don't know. Like, There are lots of different routes to it, and even if you follow them, maybe they'll work. Like, How do you become a professional musician or something like that? You know what I mean? Like, You can't just follow this step-by-step process, and oh, now I'm a professional cellist in this orchestra. That's true. Yeah, even something like an administrator or something, or like a medical office, or a construction company. Where do you get the, like, administrative knowledge and then the, like, specialty knowledge of a hospital or a construction company that you all of a sudden just become, like, a office manager with all this knowledge for something that you didn't study for? Like, how do you end up there? Right. Yeah. Well, and this is actually one of the things that I've been annoyed with with our educational system that we focus so much on theoretical knowledge mm-hmm. and ignore very practical things like what are the largest professions in the country? What qualifications do you need to get them? How do you actually go about doing this? Because 
yes, things may be less cut and dry becoming an office manager at an accounting firm or something like that. Right. Than it would be with the teacher just because it's private organizations. Mm-hmm. But it's still knowable. There are still probably very clear paths. Right. Any company, any accounting firm that hires office managers knows what they need from an office manager. So you could, if you were on their side of things, see exactly what you have to do in order to get there. It's just that no one tells children or even people looking for those jobs, right. this is what you need to do. It's not information that's readily available. Like You can find it if you dig and dig and put it together and interview and ask people, but it's not as obvious as you might like. That's true. So what expectations do you think have shaped your life? Or what impact have those expectations had on you? That's a great question. I try, you know. Yeah, because I feel like I've never had any real expectations other than work. Like, that's just something that my parents really talked about. I wouldn't say they even pushed me to do. They weren't, forget school, you know, get a job right out of high school and mm. out of this. But they were always just like, you have to work. Working is important. You need to make, okay. money. make money. And so I never really thought about it. It was just like, oh, I have to work. I have to work. It doesn't matter if I'm doing something else, like pursuing sure. school or okay. doing that like a sense. hobby, whatever, as long as I'm working. And that does feel very much like the standard American thing. Like you derive a lot of your almost personal worth from your working life and a real value for your work. I think that's a, a pretty consistent thing across the United States, much more so than you get when you go to some other countries. Very true. And it's funny because I think I'm not much of a workhorse. Okay. I'm not fond of working. I do it and I really try my best, but I'd rather not. <laughs> I think a lot of people sit in that boat. But, you know, I mean, also you haven't had hugely fulfilling or pleasant jobs thus far in your life. Mm, like it's possible true. that when you get into a challenging and fulfilling position that you would be less annoyed with it or less apathetic about it. But I think that's another thing that I find interesting about this. Mm. You're expected to find a job that you love. But how do you know that something's fulfilling? Yeah, I know it's like a personal thing because where I work at now, there's people whose careers are property management. Mm. They've been doing it for 15 years, you know? Yeah. And to me, it just seems so pointless. <laughs> Nicely put. I understand the value in it. Then it's not pointless. But I don't give it as value. see how it could be fulfilling for anyone to do that job. Okay, so there, there is, aside from the kind of commonplace narrative that you should pursue something that you love, because I feel like the commonplace narrative in the culture is either you pursue something and have a really good financial situation, and then all of your time outside of work, you can really enjoy doing the things that you love, or you should pursue something that you love, and then it doesn't matter if you don't make very much money, right? Like, I feel like that's the way it's often framed mm-hmm. in our culture. There is an alternative view that is put forth by, I forget the author, but he's the author of So Good They Can't Ignore You and Deep Work. He's a professor at one of the Ivy League universities, thing, MIT maybe? I know it's not Ivy League, but um, somewhere out on the East Coast. A very the good point. university. Yeah. In the U.S. 
Yes. And he's a mathematics professor, I think. I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'll put him and his books in the show notes. But <laughs> what? I just thought it was funny that you were like, yeah, this book from this guy who does this thing. But it's not important what he does. Moving on. Well, his, what's important is what he thinks about in his books, not his actual job. So, you know, whatever. Okay. But something that he puts forward is this idea that you should less look for fulfillment than you should look for job satisfaction. And that job satisfaction, in essence, is derived from developing mastery in something. And so you should not be like, oh, I love this thing, therefore I will pursue this thing. Mm-hmm. But you should look for, this is something that I can do for my job, and if I pursue it and develop my skills at it and get good and comfortable with it and know it really well and become expert at it, that I will feel... Perhaps not that I love my work, but I will feel very good and positive about my work. I will feel good about my ability to do a good job. I will feel good about producing my stuff well. Mm -hmm. And if I do that and become one of the better people at what I do, then Mm -hmm. I will have a good career that I enjoy much more so than if I try to fling around and feel like I have to be in love with whatever I'm doing. So essentially his thing is you'll love what or you'll enjoy whatever you're doing as long as you pursue it and try to do it well and accept that you don't have to swoon about your job right as you start work. Right. And I think that's it's a telling thing because even if you look at school, as we've discussed before, Mm -hmm. the kids that really like a certain subject often are the kids that are told they're better at it. That's true, yeah. It's not just because they actually love the subject. It's because they think they're good at it, and they like being good. And so there are all of these tangential things that can change your appreciation. But I think what you're talking about in terms of expectations is telling with this, because I definitely think that it generates a lot of unhappiness in people, that they expect to, quote-unquote, love their work. And then when they don't love their work, they want to leave their jobs. Like when we talk to people of an older generation, Uh they would just accept their job and they'd be like, yeah, it's my job. I don't have to love my job. And a lot of them, you know, of like our grandparents' generation would just stay in their jobs their whole career. Even our parents' generation would stay in their job for a long, long time at the same company. And it's just, it is what it is. Right. Whereas now people will have good jobs. They'll have jobs where there is growth potential. They'll have jobs where they can improve. And they still quit because it's not what they love to do it's not their passion or whatever and that's much more of a motivator now than it ever used to be but that's a false expectation that is developed in the culture that can't be fulfilled yeah i would have to agree with you there because what if someone's passion is playing table tennis right really pursue a viable career in table tennis true very true well and I, i think the whole passion concept is a bit of a misnomer or not maybe not misnomer but it's false on its face passion i think is developed by knowing a lot about something it's what we were talking about on our last show about interest right like if you are heavily exposed to something and you're good at something you will become passionate in it or about it or whatever right or at least you're much more likely to and so you just said what if somebody's passion is table tennis Well, if you've never heard of table tennis, your passion is not going to be table tennis. You have to be good at it and you have to be exposed to it. And so I think the idea that we have some innate passion in the same way that the idea that we have a perfect spouse or something like that, it's a 
stupid notion. The reality is you can choose between the things that you're exposed to and you'll like some of them more than others. But there are things that you haven't been exposed to that you might like better than everything you've been exposed to. That's true. And it makes me wonder, since there have been studies that talk about how depression is on the rise or it's higher now than it's ever been. Sure. I wonder if that plays a role, that expectation that you're supposed to find something you're passionate about and follow that and do it because you love to do it. How many people are really passionate about anything at all? Yeah, it definitely can't help with that situation. Especially if, say, you do know five people or ten people that are passionate about something. Mm. Or even one person who's passionate about something and they're following that and they're doing that. And then it makes somebody else feel lesser because maybe they aren't passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. It causes them to feel unfulfilled. I've experienced this very personally where when I started at university, I entered as a music major Mm -hmm. and I was going to play tuba and trombone and become a music teacher or something to that effect. And once I got there and was there for several months and just saw how much everybody around me practiced and how dedicated everybody else was to pursuing music, Mm -hmm. I became blindingly aware that as much as I enjoyed it and as much as I liked music, I was not close to as dedicated as all of those people. Right. Not only was I not as good as the vast majority of them, I was Uh, not nearly as dedicated. You know, I wasn't going to improve more than them because I wasn't as dedicated and I wasn't as good. Right. And so it was like, well, now is the immediate time to abandon this because I don't care enough and I'm not good enough. The combination is deadly. Right. And it's the kind of thing where if I had it in my head that this was my passion and this was what I was going to spend my life doing and that was just unshakable, I would have just kept walking down this road that was set up to be horribly failure-inducing and not pleasant. And imagine being one of the people who were equally passionate, but not as good. Right. And just never being able to be as good Yeah. for whatever reason. Maybe the other person was naturally better or had 10 years experience on you. You're still going to deal with this many people who are better than you forever, no matter how good you get. That's the insidious part about that expectation that we have in our society now. It kind of tells you that even if you're not very good at it, if it's what you really want to do, still do it. And while I do fully believe that if you do something a lot for a long time, you'll develop the skill. Like, I don't believe people are born incredible musicians for the most part. Right. Still telling someone that they should endlessly pursue something that they're failing at just because they feel like they love it in the moment Mm -hmm. is not a good thing because your perception of success should be tied to things that tangibly make your life better. They shouldn't be tied to these kind of false emotional expectations that you've built up because you've always been told that you have to have a passion and this is the thing that you happen to have done more than anything else. So this is the thing that you choose, you know? Right. But I want to talk about another aspect of this because there's this other aspect that was also very key to my life, which was expectations around education. And it's one that I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. John really likes talking about education. Well, but it's it's not even talking about education. It's talking about expectations and outcomes. But I wanted to talk about it in terms of education. Right. Because when you're talking about the job and the passion and things like that, 
those things are not clear and measurable in the way that education is. Right. You either go to university or you don't go to university. There's no in between. And with grades, you either get an A, a B, a C, or an D, or an F. Like there's no, oh, I don't know what I got. Uh, it's very clear. Right. And it's interesting to me how closely tied going to college is to your parents having gone to college. Mm-hmm. And for me growing up, there was no question I was going to go to college. It's not like we talked about it, but it didn't need to be discussed. It was just understood that I was going right. to university. And for a lot of people I know whose families didn't go to university, they don't have that same built-in expectations, or they even have expectations that they won't. Like I have an aunt who had a daughter, mm-hmm. and my aunt didn't go to university. Mm-hmm. And she, for the whole life of her daughter growing up, set the expectation that her daughter wasn't going to be able to go to university. I was like, no, of course not. Why would you be able to do that? Like, that's not something that we would be able to do. And I, I've always felt that if she had set a different expectation, then my cousin right. would have gone to university. But because she always was like, no, that's not going to happen, she didn't believe she could do it. My cousin didn't believe she could do it, and so she never did. Hmm. And I, I definitely think that that built-in assumption about the future right. can affect what's going to happen. Like, I also and I know I just am radically changing the subject with this, but another view where I see us, our impact with the future with this Mm -hmm. is like American optimism. Uh I've I've always thought that even if Americans are sometimes unrealistically optimistic or kind of whitewash bad things in the country or something like that, their general optimism and expectation for the future to be better historically has created a better future when you expect things to improve it puts this kind of invisible pressure and it, it almost makes it more possible it's like when somebody breaks a record in a sport right. suddenly everyone else is more able to break that record but until the first guy breaks it it's very very hard to do right and when you have that expectation that now it's breakable suddenly all the best people can do it and right. i think it's the same thing with optimism about the future that when you're optimistic and you have this expectation of improvement then the best people are going to show up and improve it yeah then you just do it that's the power that expectations have and the power of the brain and our perception of the world that when you perceive something to be true you almost drive toward making it true yeah and it's again the problem and the insidiousness of false bad expectations things like racism or sexism where if you expect women to not like math, then you build in that expectation. And all of these little things that you're not conscious of push them toward being bad at it and set their expectations of being bad at it. And so then they don't do it. And so then they end up being bad at it. Right. You create the self-fulfilled reality. Very true. So when you were growing up, I know you talked about work being the primary thing, but like, what were your educational expectations? Did you expect to go to university? Did you expect to get good grades? Like, um, how was that? Not even coming from your family, but just generally. You know, I never really thought about grades, but I did expect to go to university. Okay. I think that expectation probably came from movies or television shows because growing up, I watched a lot of movies and television shows. Sure. Of, you know, teenagers and young people or whatever. Well, and that is another significant influence for people of like our generation and even the generation before us where we suddenly have TV around all the time in a way that our grandparents wouldn't have had. Right. 
And so my idea of what people should be doing definitely derived from television. Okay, that's interesting. And so I was like, yeah, people go to university, that's what they do. According to every movie and television show I've ever seen, it's just what happens. And that is funny, because I feel like that reinforced my perception of it as well, because not only from my family was I like, oh, well, obviously I'm going to go to university, but from all of the culture around me. Like, I remember when I first realized that a lot of people didn't go to university, mm-hmm. when I first realized that only about a third of the United States goes to university, uh-huh. and that that was the highest proportion it's ever been. And I was just, I was just so stunned and like, well, what does everybody else do? How did, like, how is that possible? Because it was like, my parents went to university. The parents of most of the people that I knew went to university. Right. Almost everybody I knew of my age group went to university. Uh How is it that two thirds of people don't do this? That seemed insane to me. Growing up in not the greatest neighborhood. Yeah. In schools that were not the best schools. Well, your high school was not that bad of a yeah. school. Like, well, that's true. Your high school was just a normal school like mine. No, that's definitely true. But before that. Sure, yeah, elementary school and stuff. Yeah, middle school or whatever. Some of the people I grew up with, right before you know we separated and went to different high schools, mm-hmm. I could already tell you which ones were not going to graduate. From high school? Yeah. Mm. Some of them barely made it out of middle school. And the ones who made it... Out of middle school, there was those who were just going to keep going to school because, you know, they were supposed to go to school and they were going to graduate high school. Yeah. Probably not go to a university, but graduate high school. Mm. And then there were others, and there were so few of them. I could probably list the people I remember meeting who I knew were going to definitely go to a university and graduate. And I can tell you that from when I was 13. Okay. Maybe you were more perceptive with this, and maybe I was just a little more blind but when i graduated from high school a lot of people i knew didn't go to university and so i did know a lot of people that didn't end up going down that path Mm -hmm. but when i was in high school it didn't even really occur to me that those people wouldn't because again it was just like in my head everyone goes to university that's what you do after high school right and so even though like i knew some people got worse grades i knew some people weren't as bright or something you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. but I didn't think, oh, well, they're just going to stop doing so. It almost felt like dropping out to me. You know what I mean? Where right. it was like, well, why would you do that? That just seems like not the thing that you do. See, because see, for me, it wasn't an expectation in the way that everyone was supposed to do it. It was more mm-hmm. like it's the right thing to do. Right, sure, sure. If you want the quality of your life to be better, university is the next step. Yeah, and it was almost like that's what good people do. Sure. It felt to me very similar to the whole work concept, where mm-hmm. it's like, good people work, bad people don't work. Ah, I see. Like, if okay. you don't work, you're lazy, and you're not doing what you should be doing for society and to better yourself and all of those sorts of things. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so that builds in a much deeper moral arbiter to the whole thing. So can I ask you a question? Sure. So now experiencing what you have experiencing and realizing how few people do go to university. Yeah. Has your expectations for people coming out of high school changed at all? Or is it still university or bus for you? Well, I know that most people in the United States don't go to university, so I don't have the expectation that they will. Well, I'm not... Like, you mean people that I know personally? 
not that they will, just you were talking about how good people go to university. It's the thing you're supposed to do, you know? Right. Like, is that still how you feel about it? No. Well, and it wasn't even... Okay, I, I maybe said it a little bit too strongly. It wasn't oh. like people that don't go to university are bad people no, I or something know. That's like that. No, what you meant, I just meant, is that still how you feel about university? Like, it's the right thing to do? Or do you think there's other options? <laughs> so Have you become more open-minded or fluid about the idea of going to university right out of high school? It is funny because I have become increasingly disillusioned with our educational system. And you, you know all of the qualms I have about how we learn and what we teach people. Right. So I am less enthralled with university as a absolute positive good for people. Mm-hmm. And I'm increasingly leaning toward the side that university, while it does train you and educate you, is much more of a filtering system than it is this huge life-changing educational thing. And mm-hmm. many of the people who go to university would be well-informed and educated and intelligent without going to university. Okay. So I less think that it's an absolute thing that you need to do for your personal growth. That being said, it does feel like failing in a certain way if you don't. Okay. Because there is this societal expectation and because there will be clear ramifications for your career and your job prospects and the social circles you operate in. Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, it has a lot of knock-on effects that are just structurally built in. Right. And so anybody that I knew that was graduating from high school, I would probably still, yeah, have a big expectation of so what university you're going to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's still definitely there. I'm much less judgmental about it, I guess, mm-hmm. because I know the proportions of how many people don't. All right. Okay. I don't know. That actually does bring up another side of this, which is not only the expectations that you have yourself, but how do the expectations of the people around you impact you with everything you do? And for a kid in school, if everyone expects them to drop out of high school, like you were saying at 13, you knew all the people that were going to drop out and you knew all the people that were going to go to university. Mm-hmm. Your actions around them and toward them are probably reinforcing this all the time, making them feel like, oh, I'm stupid. I'm somebody that doesn't go to class or doesn't do anything else like that. This is who I am because everyone else thinks this is who I am. That's probably true. I didn't mean to say... I knew who they were in the sense that I was already like, this is your future. Okay. But in hindsight, it was very clear. Ah, okay. I I understand what you're saying. Because, yeah, as a 13-year-old, you're not really thinking about that too much, probably. Right. But once I was like 16, 17, I was like, oh, I know the people who are going (laughs) to fail and succeed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's what all of those signs were. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And later on, after we left high school and I saw who went to university and who didn't, for the most part, not universally, but for the most part, I was like, oh yeah, sure, that makes sense. Now that I think about it, okay, I'm with you. But it does definitely affect your behavior in a significant way. When you think about, like even attendance, like I knew people who missed school all the time. And for me, it was like, I'm not going to miss school. Like, why would I ever miss school? That's not a thing. Like you don't miss school. And so I went years without missing a day of school. Right. Just because that was never an option. But I knew people that would just stay home and like hang out. Mm-hmm. I knew a guy that would just stay home. He would not go to school. His girlfriend wouldn't go to school. Then they would go hang out. They had wildly different expectations. 
And, you know, it actually plays into the work life too, which is a really interesting thing because there's this weird moral slant to it in work and in school uh-huh. where when I worked in Korea, we had, I think we had like 20 sick days built into the year. Like we had a lot of sick days we could take. Wow. But there was this really strong social pressure in Korean schools to never take sick days and just to just come in sick. Really? And I had even friends that worked there that were like Western. They were American or Canadian or Australian, whatever they were. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them felt bad about taking a sick day. And my whole perspective was, those are our days. If it's a personal day instead of a sick day, then it's a personal day instead of a sick day. But those are days that we can take off when we need a day to not be at work. Uh Like it's not vacation days. You can't just take two weeks of them right in a row, but you can just take a day if you need a day. And other people were just kind of appalled at my perspective on that, that I could just take a day off. Mm -hmm. Like at one point, right after you visited me, I went back to Busan to hang out with Carlos, our friend who was still there. um, My now girlfriend and her sister that were all going to be in Busan. And I was like, I've got these three people I know that are going to be in Busan. They're all going to be there. I have to be at school this day. I'm just going to take a day and go to Busan and spend it with them. Right. And so I did that. And I remember when I got there, they were all kind of like, how is this okay? You just took a day off and stuff like that. And I'm like, this is what they're for. To me, it was the most natural thing in the world. And to them, it was like this almost moral travesty. That's funny. I think it's weird that that's an expectation of people. Why? Because why would you offer someone something that they're not supposed to take? That's my perspective on it as well. Right. And then I know there's people who work salaried positions. Yeah. Who talk about being done with their work at like two, but they stay until five anyways. Yeah, that was ubiquitous in Korea, that everyone would stay until like seven. And they would just take a lot of breaks and have snacks and things throughout the day because they couldn't leave early. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, if you did your work, why would staying longer mean that you're working harder than if you just right. went home? Yeah, I'm completely with you. Yeah. It baffles me because why would your manager expect you to stay long? Doesn't that make you seem less efficient? Oh, that's actually a good point. I had never thought about it like that. Yeah. If you're done at two and you did your job and you're not paid an hourly rate, what's wrong with you at two? That just makes you seem like you're really good at your job. But you do see why that would be the case, right? Like you want to seem hardworking. You want to seem dedicated. And for a lot of jobs, the work doesn't just end. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, I finished all the work I was given today. Like you're working on things for weeks. Right. Like if you're working on a big presentation or a big report that's due in like three weeks, you're not going to be like, oh, well, I finished all my work for the today at two. It's like I'm putting the rest of the work off until tomorrow. That's what you're saying. I mean... If you have the report ready by Thursday, do you take Friday off if you've also completed all your daily tasks? Right. I I see what you're saying, but... There's so many ways where that could still mean you could take an extra day off because you did your work. Or do you go in on Saturday too if you're not as good at work? I do completely agree with you rationally, but it is that whole thing that like, if they see you, they're going to think about you and they're going to think, oh, he's here. He's working hard. I mean, I understand both sides of that. I do agree with you. Having a company culture built around spending a lot of time and not being necessarily good or efficient is counterproductive. And that's one of the reasons why I think in Korea, they work longer hours than anywhere else in the world, and yet they have much lower productivity 
than the United States or many European countries. They have the highest education levels in the world. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's above Japan. So they wow. have highly educated people. They have highly dedicated people that stay at companies for a long time. So they don't have that much in terms of switching costs or learning costs mm-hmm. when they go to new firms. Right. They work really long hours and yet their average income is like $15,000 below the US or something like that. There are structural aspects to that as well, but it's the kind of thing where the culture is part of it. Can that, I just I bring something up? Yeah, And of this is also slightly off topic, but since we're talking about Korea, yeah. I was speaking to Carlos, because as you know, he's on vacation from Korea. I do, yes. Here in California. And he was telling me that Koreans believe that they're the superior race or the super people or something. Yeah, they do. They have this belief. And I don't think everyone takes it super seriously, but it is kind of there. Yeah. Right. That also confuses me slightly. Why? Because they've literally been dominated by every power around them. Well, if you're the best people, but you're a small people, doesn't make mean you're not the best people. Japan's not that much bigger than Korea. Japan's more than double the size of Korea. Is it really? Yeah. Hmm. I always figured that they were similar in size. I mean, if you look at a place like Mexico and you say, well, if Mexico has the greatest people, why aren't they dominating the United States? It's like, well, they're, they're not nearly as big. They don't have the natural resources. It doesn't matter how great their people are. You know what I mean? Like, Switzerland's never going to dominate Germany. It's just not going to happen. I mean, Mongolia dominated China. Okay. Touche. That's a very good point. Uh, I just, you know... Not not for long stretches of history. <laughs> but they did. They unified it. Like bosses. Sure. Yeah. Like, okay. Just, I mean, granted. I, I know that's but literally, one example, it, but I'm just saying, if they Like, could when you're talking it, about Genghis Khan, you're talking about a person who essentially organized the entire society into an army. So... <laughs> When you have 100% of people who don't farm and, like, stab. There was Korean <laughs> Genghis Khan. I'm just saying, if you're really that great, you find a way. That's all I'm trying to get at. I don't think the pinnacle of society is being able to dominate your neighbors, but I digress. Mm. It was at one point. No, it wasn't. I completely disagree. But... People were always conquering each other. The people who yeah, did the most conquering because... always got to be the great, blah, 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 the great. Right. We're always murdering people, too. Humans are constantly doing bad things. That doesn't mean that that's the pinnacle of civilization or society, just because it happens. Like, there's prostitution in every society. Doesn't mean that's the best thing in the world. <laughs> I don't think just because we've always been doing it, suddenly it's like, oh, well, obviously. I didn't say your, your, your thing about the great is, is a valid point, though. Yeah. We do kind of glorify people who yeah. dominated everyone else. Right. That's what I'm saying. I didn't, I'm not saying that it is the pinnacle of society, but at one point it was considered the pinnacle of your society if you are able to like conquer everyone around you. I mean, sure, in a certain respect. But like you look at places like China, who considered themselves to be the pinnacle of society, and they didn't go around conquering everyone at almost any point in their history. So, I don't know. Anyway, mo- moving on. Yes, Koreans do think that they're kind of inherently better than everyone else. But I think that's almost a natural belief that grows up in a society that's separated and cut off from everyone else they're also called the hermit kingdom and they talk about their whole like five thousand year history or whatever it is Mm -hmm. and i think that whenever you see a country that doesn't mix with people very much and is Mm -hmm. kind of isolated and insular and not very diverse right you end up having a lot of mistrust of outsiders mistrust of foreigners and you end Mm -hmm. up having 
them kind of think that they're the best. Like, I think that's one of the reasons why Americans are so obsessed with being the best people. Because even though there are lots of Americans that travel, there are lots of Americans who have gone all over the world. A large portion of the United States never leaves the country and doesn't know anybody who's not in the country just because it's so big and there aren't very many countries nearby. And one of the countries that is nearby, Canada, most people kind of think of as the same as the United States. Like it's the same country. Right. I know technically it's different and technically there are some differences in the culture, but for all intents and purposes, the same. It's a little harder, I think, for America, the U.S., to have that belief when there's so many different other cultures and ethnicities here. Well, it's hard for Americans to have that belief based upon race, but it's not hard for Americans to have that belief. I guess that's true. Because they, like, Americans generally, I think, think that America is the best because of what we believe, what we've done historically. Right, right. Like, it's not because our blood is better, but it's because we believe in freedom and democracy and big guns and, you know, all that stuff. That's probably true. But people really like to say, you know, I'm a red-blooded American. So they definitely think there's some kind of... I don't think red-blooded American means, like, oh, I'm have a certain ethnicity. <laughs> like, I don't know. Red-blooded American means like I have that. a certain perspective on the world. Like, I, I have this I virulent, I'm a strong, powerful person. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that's just, that's just luck. You just happen to be born here. Right. But you could say that's just luck. You just happen to be born to your parents in terms of ethnicity. Like, it, it's, no, I mean, it's no different. It is just luck, isn't it? <laughs> right. Okay. I'm going to move on from this. Okay. You okay with that? Yeah, no, I'm fine. So, sorry. Okay. You, you know how I get. <laughs> okay, there was one other thing that I want to talk about a little bit before we close up. All right. If you don't mind. I don't? Or Good. do I? What is it? Shoot. So I wanted to talk about perhaps the driest subject of the dry. No, mathematics is drier. So I wanted to talk a little bit about philosophy and one particular part of philosophy. All right, hold up. I'm wrapping the episode up. All right, good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, go. Okay, what part of philosophy do you want to talk about? Okay, so I think it's, it's actually interesting and, and useful. So I want to talk about logic. Mm-hmm. Because I think logic is held up by popular culture and by most people, and not wrongly as this kind of ideal. Like if you're logical, that's almost like the highest compliment you can give someone. Like that means you're smart. That means you're intelligent. That means you're a good thinker. Really? To me, if someone is really good at logic, it just makes me think that they know how to argue. But wouldn't you... A lot of times the way people frame things is logical and emotional. If you're logical, you think a lot. And if you're emotional, you react based upon emotion and reflex. Would you not agree that that's how it's often talked about? Yes. Okay. So it's kind of like logical thinking is equated with rational thinking, which are related, of course. And rationality is equated with intelligence and a thinking person as opposed to an irrational, emotional, reactive person. And I think that people take that too far is essentially what I'm going for. Oh, okay. And here's the crux of the situation. All right, give us the crux. I think people look at logic and they say, oh, well, if it's logically correct, that means that it's correct. And I think people view logic as a way to prove something. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a fundamental misunderstanding 
of what logic is and the purpose of argument and logic. Mm-hmm. So let's let's take let me take away the word logic for a minute and just stick with argument, okay? Okay. So if I make an argument mm-hmm. and you go through and you say all of this argument, everything in this argument, every component is internally consistent. Which means right. like if I say if I'm taller than you, then you're shorter than me. Right. Right? Logically, that is true. Mm-hmm. And so internally, that is consistent. Right. And so what you can say is that argument is valid. All right? And, okay, so I, I'm saying this in far too convoluted a way. Essentially, what I mean is logic is a way to check if an argument is false, if it's not true. Right. So if I tell you something and I say... I'm taller than you, therefore you're fat. You can say, no, that argument is incoherent, gobbledygook, and just completely useless. That is a fallacious argument that is invalid. True. So you can say, I can ignore that argument. Check, I don't have to think about this anymore because it's a stupid, invalid argument. Mm -hmm. But if the argument is valid, you cannot conversely say, yes, that is a true statement. Because logic only checks if something is internally consistent. And so determining whether or not something is valid is only based upon accepting the premises that are stated at the beginning. Right. Because like if I say, if I'm taller than you, then you're shorter than me. You have to accept that I'm taller than you right? in order for you being shorter than me to be true. Mm-hmm. So if that fact is not true, then the whole argument is pointless. Right. And I think people look at arguments and they say oh well that argument's interesting that argument's valid and so it must be true and they like believe things simply because they're valid yes but that's not the point you can just say okay that argument's valid therefore i have to think about it or i have to consider it not it's true right because you know because i've taken a couple of philosophy classes none uh, like logic in particular but logic does come up constantly okay one of the things they would do is they would just give you the most ass nine sentence in the world. Mm. Like, if this alien is green, then the moon is square or something. Okay. Right? Yeah. But they were like, assuming that it's true, green aliens live on a planet with a square moon. It is okay. a valid argument, but that doesn't necessarily make the sentence true. Sure. Right? Okay. And yeah. so... I feel like that's an interesting thing I, I think people don't think about it just because the sentence makes sense based on a premise that may or may not be true doesn't mean that the sentence is true. Just Yeah, absolutely. And, and so for everyday life, I think that's a very useful thing to remember. When you're having a conversation with someone, if somebody says something that makes sense, that only means I have to take it more seriously and mm-hmm. think about it. And if somebody says something that doesn't make sense and is illogical, then you can dismiss it. I mean, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a kernel in there of truth. Right. But it means that the way they worded it or phrased it. Yeah. The way they put together that idea Mm -hmm. is not true if it's illogical or if it's fallacious. But if it is logical and it is valid, then that means you just have to think about it. It's a way to filter things out because lots of people say lots of stupid things all the time. And if they say something that is flatly impossible, then you can say, okay, I don't have to listen to that. And if they do it repeatedly, then you can say, all right, this person clearly lacks 
a certain ability to think. Mm -hmm. And so you can start to dismiss their ideas more broadly. But you cannot use that as a way to prove things. So right. that, that that's the main thrust of it. But I think it's even bigger because when you stretch this and you start to look at empiricism versus rationalism, mm -hmm. it, it comes into even clearer focus and it becomes a more important thing than just mm -hmm. your everyday life communicating with people, trying to figure out what you believe. Because essentially the premise behind rationalism is if you can find something, okay, I, I'm probably going to state this poorly and too broadly, but if you find something that doesn't have any internal contradictions and is broadly accurate mm -hmm. in terms of its logical structure, then it's going to be true, right? So rationalism is, the, is kind of the idea that we can figure things out by thinking about them. Right. And empiricism is the idea that you can only figure things out by looking. And if you see a cow, then there's a cow. Right. Then it's true. Whereas rationalism would be, you can think about, oh, is there a cow? And eventually figure out just by thinking whether or not there is a cow there through logic. And I think people value rationalism far too highly and undervalue empiricism. Because I mean, empiricism is how you prove that things are true. You prove things with empiricism. Right. You only disprove things with logic and rationalism. Right. Empiricism is science. Yes, yes. Science is the most common application of empirical thought. Yeah. As close to the truth as you can get. Yes. Well, that's the only way that we can right. derive truth is by perceiving it and testing it, right? But... That being said, I do think that rationalism plays an important role with empiricism and observation because rationalism is how you kind of filter empiricism. Because if you see something and it doesn't rationally make sense, then you can start looking at it and saying, we're missing something. Right. Okay. And then you can start to try to figure out what you're missing because simple observation doesn't necessarily flush everything out. True. So just in... Yeah, and I know this is a bit esoteric and it's a bit in the weeds, but... Uh -huh. So then, what would you consider a common ground between empiricism and rationalism or a practice that applies both in the most effective way? So I think they can both be used in a process of learning or discovery of the truth. And I think the way that you use them is as we go through our daily lives... And as we read and as we learn about things and as we talk to people, we are constantly bombarded with information. And that information is either true or false, right? Mm -hmm. And we have to figure out, is it true or false? Each of us has to do that with every piece of information we find. And I think you use empiricism and rationalism as tools to filter that information into the true column or the false column. And I think the usefulness of rationalism is when things don't make sense, uh -huh. you can much more quickly eliminate them and put them in the false column. Because most people that are lying or right. coming up with things that are not true mm -hmm. aren't very good at logic and logical thinking and putting out coherent, cohesive arguments. And so when they come at you with something that doesn't make sense, mm -hmm. you can eliminate it much faster. And when you come up with something that you can actually see and connects to something that you know intimately, mm -hmm. then you can say, okay, that is empirically true. I have observed it or I have dealt with this. Right? It's kind of like what we were talking about last week 
was it last week? No, no, this was this must have been much longer ago. Mm-hmm. But on one of the episodes, we talked about The Economist and mm-hmm. how it doesn't post its authors on every article. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how that's not an issue for me because I've read it enough right? and read enough things in it about things that I know very well myself. right? And it's always been consistently providing me good, accurate information about things that I know personally mm-hmm. that I can trust the rest of what they say for the most part. Okay. And that's because I empirically know that some of the things are true because I have observed it or I've studied it very deeply mm-hmm. or whatever. And so I can verify that that stuff is true. And so I extrapolate that then I can trust a lot more of their stuff. Now, if I was just saying, oh, their stuff is logically accurate, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that I can necessarily trust their stuff. That just means I can trust that they can think. Right. Okay. And those are two different standards that so you can use both of them. Okay. That makes sense. And I think it's useful, especially in this time when everybody's dealing with these issues of fake news, to right. think about it like that. Because you really do just have to be active in your filtering. Whenever there's something that's important in your life, mm-hmm. it's useful to think about it and break it down. When you read something, you might just in your head think, oh, that's true or that's false. But if you think about the processes by which you determine if it's true or false, it just adds a little texture and a little depth to that process and allows you to perhaps do it more accurately than if you just did it on reflex or on gut feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. funny, and it didn't occur to me until very recently okay. that I've started to use the phrase that makes sense when someone says something to me instead of like, oh, that's true. Or you're right. I always just go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And it's funny because it's just making me think of this in that way where I'm basically taking people at their word because it makes sense without actually believing what they're saying. Yeah. Obviously, I'm not doing this consciously. Right. It's just something you've gradually started to do. Right. But that's, that is a better way to go about it because you are acknowledging the validity of what they're saying yeah. without endorsing what they're saying. Right. Because it's true. When you, when you say it's true to something, you're saying, based upon my experience, I know that that is a true statement. You're not saying, based upon what you said, that seems like it could be true. Right. So saying it makes sense is a, is a much better way to say it. I know that that's just kind of like a little filler statement that most people don't actually think about when they're saying but it's nice to be precise in communication. And so, nice. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting shift. Yeah. yeah. Never noticed that until just right now. You started talking about this, and that just clicked in my head. So we encourage everyone to say that makes sense if it makes sense. <laughs> yes. Say that makes sense if it makes sense. And say that is true if it is true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You want to wrap this one up, Mike? Yes. Yes, it should okay. be. Subjectradio.com. Yes. You can find all of our show notes at subjectradio.com. This episode in particular at subjectradio.com slash WWOTS slash 010. WWOTS slash 010. Episode 10. We made it to the end of our first season, I guess. Our first. I th- Yeah, I think 10 is what I think of as our seasons. Okay. So I'm excited for our second one. I'm excited to keep this going. I'm really kind of happy with where we've gone with this whole project. So, And please share our episodes with your friends and your enemies. Yeah. Share mm-hmm. it with anyone that you think might enjoy it. If you yeah. enjoy the show, 
It would really mean a lot to us if you guys would share it with somebody else. And it really hopefully would. we bring enough value to warrant that sort of thing. Please and thank you and all of that. I suppose I will see you next week, Mike? Yeah, of course. All right. I'll talk to you then, man. All right. Bye. Bye. What? I'm going to read your mind. Oh, okay. Do you want to talk about empiricism? <laughs> <laughs> I totally said that really uh, weirdly. Uh, yeah, uh, you did. Yeah, I was like, oh, uh, that's not how I... Definitely leaving that in. That. Yeah. Empiricism. <laughs> yes. That's what I meant to say. Yes, that is what I want to discuss.